This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Now, as you may or may not be aware, this week is National Croquet Week. And to celebrate, we're taking a look back at the lawn games and sports that have been played at English Heritage's historic sites. From croquet and bowling lawns, to cricket pitches, tennis courts and even golf courses, English Heritage sites have hosted a surprising variety of sports, with many continuing to be played today. Joining us to reveal more are English Heritage Landscape Advisor Emily Parker Hiya. and architectural historian specialising in sport, Simon Inglis. Hello. Now, as it's National Croquet Week, as we've said, let's start with that. So, when and where did the sport of croquet originate, Simon? Well, it arrives in Britain in about the 1850s. And like so many of the sports that we play today, the origins are disputed. Several different versions appeared, even by the 1860s and 70s. But the generally accepted tenet is that it probably came from Brittany in northern France, but it arrived in England via Ireland, a slightly long-winded route. The idea being that it was a sort of a, a popular game played on the beaches of Brittany, pushing balls through hoops made out of willow rods, which is possibly where the word croquet comes from. And then it arrives about 1850 or so in England, and immediately there's a scramble amongst various parties to claim it for their own, devise their own rules. It ends up in a long court case in 1864 over the copyright of the rules. But the winner, undoubtedly, is a games manufacturer called John Jakes of Hatton Garden in London, and they sold something like 64,000 copies of the rules in the first year or so. It took off immediately Mm. amongst the country house set. The Victorian entrepreneurs, particularly around the middle to the end of the 19th century, were always looking for the next new thing, no different from today, like video games and all sorts of things like that. And they saw rich profits amongst the burgeoning middle classes. And croquet just hits at the right time, just as the lawnmower has been invented. And the middle classes are, for the first time in history, they no need to have a, a heavy roller or, or a flock of sheep or a scythe man. They can buy a, a lawnmower and have a lawn in their back garden. And croquet was perfect for that. So it became the middle class pastime, basically. Very much so. And it satirised as such. Very quickly, it becomes part of popular culture. The most famous example being Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, where Alice is playing croquet with the Queen and she has a flamingo as a mallet and a hedgehog as a ball. Everybody reading this would have immediately known. It was a bit like perhaps satirising Pilates or Zumba might be today. It appears in paintings. Manet features croquet in 1874. Little Women, there's a croquet game. Anthony Trollope mentions it in a novel. It even gets as far as Russia. Tolstoy refers to a game of croquet in Anna Karenina in 1878. So even in that time, games could colonise the world very quickly. And it really was, by the sounds of things, the game of the 1800s then. Well, no, it was actually a brief blip because, uh, you know, the one thing, as Oscar Wilde said about being fashionable, is that very soon you become unfashionable. And uh, croquet was eclipsed really within about 20 years of its popularity because it had been a game that women could play as well. 
and was extremely popular because of that. Lots of stories of women kicking balls into the grass so she and her lover can go and, and look for it whilst the <laughs> right. chaperone is, is caught off guard. But the problem was is that men found it a little bit too effeminate. It, you couldn't raise a sweat. So it starts to fall out of popularity. Also, the rule makers started to make it more complicated. And one newspaper, the London Daily News, said that poor old croquet, it's become too earnest. They made the hoops too narrow and it started to become a little bit too difficult because, you know, the country house set, basically they just want a nice drink and a nice party. So which English heritage sites have had a croquet lawn or still have one today then? At Warmer Castle and Belsay Hall, croquet lawns were set alongside tennis courts and they created sort of a kind of a hub of activity in certain areas of the gardens. So the croquet lawn at Belsay was created in the 1880s by the owner Arthur Middleton and it can still be seen today. In fact, it's still played on by the local club. So if you're at Belsay, sometimes you can catch them playing on a Sunday afternoon. Mm. It's quite nice. Yeah, I think um, it was mentioned to me when we went up and visited uh, on one of our previous episodes. Any other sites then, apart from the, the uh, northeast of England, as you mentioned there, Emily? So at Warmer Castle, they had a croquet lawn as well, and that was set alongside a tennis court, and they had that as kind of a sort of area for to play games in. Mm-hmm. And the family would have enjoyed playing that, and the Lord Wardens and their families would have enjoyed playing croquet there in the early 20th century. And that's in the southeast of England in, in Kent, isn't it? Sort of yeah. around the Deal, Dover kind of area. I gather that croquet came under threat, though, Simon, from another lawn game. You mentioned the, de- the decline gradually. It was, it was quite a bit of a blip, as you say. Yes, the decline really is partly because men are finding it a little bit untesting. They're looking for something a little bit more strenuous. But it's also because in the 1850s, uh, Charles Goodyear invents or claims to have invented vulcanised rubber. And as a result of vulcanised rubber, for the first time in the history of mankind, you can bounce a ball properly on grass. And so a number of keen tennis players, people who were playing on hard courts, a game which we now call real tennis, which had been around since the 12th, 13th century, were now starting to experiment playing with rubber balls on grass. And of course, where better to try playing a game like this than on a croquet lawn? So the croquet lawns were very rapidly colonised by this new up-and-coming game of lawn tennis. And again, within about 20 years, lawn tennis had spread right around the world and poor old croquet was really in the doldrums by then. Of course, the other advantage of tennis was that the size of it was just perfect for the back gardens of large Victorian houses. And even if you couldn't have it in your actual back garden, if you can imagine a grid of Victorian houses formed in a block, there's always a space left in the middle. And that was perfect for slotting in a tennis club. So tennis clubs, of which there were only, I think, something like 26 clubs in 1882, by the Second World War, there's over 3,000. And that's partly because there was room for them in the growing suburbs. Of course, the other thing is, is if you've got a tennis club at the end of your garden, it doesn't have to do well for your property prices and property values. Ah. And it's a great socialising place. We all remember the Joan Hunter Dunn poem by John Pitchman. How many people have found love at the tennis club at the end of the garden? That's true. And uh, I think that continues today. And uh, as you said, croquet was a sport for men and women. And... Out of that came tennis and that tradition of being able to meet people, play doubles, meet the opposite sex, continued. 
hugely important. Indeed, when we were launching Played in London, one of the books in the English Heritage series, Played in Britain, a woman came up to us from the audience and uh, there was a photograph of her at the tennis club in Beckenham. And she said, oh, we have this picture on our wall because that was my first day at the tennis club and I've just married the secretary. <laughs> so it still <laughs> happens today. When did uh, Wimbledon then become the home of English tennis? Well, that's an interesting one because it started as a croquet club. The All England Croquet Club was formed in 1868. They found premises in Warple Road in Wimbledon a few years later. And in 1875, so they've been there playing croquet for about five years, somebody tried an early game of tennis on the croquet lawns. They had their first championships in 1877. And then in 1899, it switches over and it becomes the All England Tennis Club and Croquet Club. Tennis taking over completely. So from 1870 to 1922, Warple Road, which is now a school playing field, it belongs to Wimbledon High School. And, and the original pavilion is still there, still used by the girls at the school. That was the epicentre of world tennis. Wow. So the place where we have Wimbledon now, is is that much further away from...? It's not far away. They simply outgrew it. The boom in tennis, I don't think anybody could quite have foreseen how popular it was going to become. So within 50 years of the game becoming an international sport, Wimbledon has moved to new premises and built itself the new number one court and the centre mm. court and really expanded. So although you look back at it and you say, well, that's 50 years... But that's 50 years in which it gets to Australia, Germany, America, Canada. You know, everybody is now playing tennis. In fact, one commentator, Bernard Darwin, of Downhouse fame, who we might come back to later, he said that he felt that tennis had become the first truly national English game. What was um, the attraction of tennis then? You, we've talked about the social aspect and people being able to meet each other and meet partners potentially. Well, the, the social aspect of it clearly is terribly important. Up to the middle to the end of the 19th century, just the very idea of ladies perspiring in public and making a physical effort was seen as rather ungainly and unwomanly, and it was frowned upon. So it is not overstating it to say that where women gather at sports clubs, so men will gather. But then, of course, you start growing up through the generations, your children, your grandchildren, and so on. And then it becomes very much part and parcel of English village and town life. And of course, as the suburbs are expanding, people are desperate to find an identity, a place that they can go along to. And the local tennis club, the local place where you can not just play, but you can have a dinner dance in the evening, people can sit and play cards during the winter, it becomes very much a social hub. So even if you weren't very good at tennis, you could still play. You could always find a partner who you were able to play with. Yes, and I think even at Wimbledon now, don't they have the uh, the annual dinner dance after the championships? Absolutely, very much part of, of that social tradition. And people often, you know, they spent their whole weekends in these clubs. It wasn't uncommon for husbands and wives to be involved in tournaments, then making sandwiches in the evening, then doing something the next day. It, it dominated many people's lives right up until the Second World War, really, in the television age. Just to bring Emily back into the conversation and the English heritage connection to tennis, which sites had tennis courts? Who owned one? So we were talking about croquet lawns at Belsay Hall, and they also had a tennis court. And 
I find the tennis court at Belsay Hall quite interesting because it's built on this very flat area which was levelled purposefully to make the court. But the location wasn't ideal because one side had a very low wall with a kind of sunken fence behind it and the ground falls away. So obviously they had the problem that their balls, when they were hitting them, kept ending off falling down this massive drop. Mm. So Sir Arthur, who Middleton, who was the man who owned Belsay Hall, created a quite ingenious solution to this problem by having a kind of fixed net which you could take down, which he would put up when they played tennis, which I think is quite a neat solution to that problem. Yes, you see those at the ends of sports pitches today, yeah, don't you? For, exactly. To stop so, footballs yeah. going into the farmer's field and, and what have you, or cricket balls. Yeah. yeah, so like an 1880s version of that, which I think is quite fun. Mm. Um, they also had one at Elton Palace, which was obviously owned by the Courtauld family, who were very at the height of fashion. So they had a very fashionable garden, they had a very fashionable house, and obviously a tennis court was then part of that very fashionable area. Sadly, they don't survive anymore, and that's now where the children's play area is today. So sadly, mm. they're now gone, but they were in that area. And one of the most interesting examples of a tennis court, I think, at English Heritage Properties is at Down House where there's a very rare example of sort of hourglass-shaped tennis court. Simon might be able to add more about this, but the theory that goes is that it was the shape of the court followed the specifications of a very early tennis set, which is in about 1874. And that was the first commercially packaged version of lawn tennis, which had this hourglass shape in it. I don't know if that's true, but that is it is a very odd shape and it is that hourglass shape. So perhaps that's one explanation. So it's a and sort of um, almost looks like uh, two trapeziums uh, with mm. the shortest ends meeting at the middle with that grid shape. Yeah, it's kind of pinched in, at the net, as you would right. say. Sort of, it mm. comes in towards the, the net. And Emma Darwin, who was Charles Darwin's wife, wrote in 1881 that they were boiling over with schemes about the tennis court. And it was later built in November that year. And there's lots of records of the family enjoying playing at it. And you can still see the concrete surface of it today at Down House, but there's no net. So it doesn't really look like a tennis court. But if you know where to find it, you can still see it at Down House today. Is it kind of enclosed? Is there a, a walled, walled area around it? or? So it's in a walled garden area. So this is an area that the Darwins bought later on in Charles Darwin's life while they were living at Down. So it's like an added area that they bought into their garden mm -hmm. and they set it up as a tennis court then. Before that, they played tennis on the front lawn directly in front of the house. Right. Okay. Em Emily's quite right that it's an extremely unusual affair and really tennis historians can't quite understand it because... The game that Emily was referring to, which was the first boxed set of tennis equipment sold in 1874, it was invented by a chap called Major Clopton Wingfield, a curious cove of a chap. And he sold these box sets at about six pounds, six guineas a time. So it was really only for the very wealthy. But it, he doesn't specify that you're supposed to play it on grass, on, on a turf court. So why the Darwin family laid the court in concrete, we don't know. But also, bafflingly, they laid it, as, as Emily said, in 1881. Well, by 1877, the rectangular court had become the common court, the, the one that we recognise today. So they were building an obsolete form of tennis in an unnecessary material. 
what a curious family they were. And, you know, I remember reading how George, the son, was a very keen tennis player, but he was also one of the first people to have a bicycle with pneumatic tyres. And he was an early adopter of the telephone. So I think this sort of experimental streak must have gone right throughout the family. Well, let's move on to some other lawn sports or games. And bowls or bowling is one or two. It's a particular favourite of the older generation today. Bowls, that is. And a lot of towns and villages will have this perfectly flat grass bowling green, which looks very English and very idyllic, really. But how far back into history do bowling games go? Well, the answer is it's thousands of years. You can find examples in Egyptian tombs at Pompeii, people rolling balls. I I think as far as humanity goes back, there was always going to be probably a man picking up a nut or an apple or a bit of wood and throwing it at someone else. And the other thing is, is that bowling games are common to many different cultures. What places the the game of bowls as we know it today in, in, in Britain, apart from really every other form of bowling around the world, is that first of all it's played on grass and secondly that the bowls have this inner built bias. They're slightly misshapen in a way that the trajectory of the ball as it travels across the turf goes in a sort of a curve and you're playing it towards another ball which is called the jack. So we've got evidence of this really going back to the 13th century that bias was understood. There was a a bowl excavated in Hull in the 1970s that showed that even in the 13th century they understood bias. It's described in various journals in the 16th century. Shakespeare refers to bias quite a lot. And of course, we have the legend of Sir Francis Drake bowling at the Amada, which may or may not be true. It's entirely possible that it did happen. But the reason that the legend grew was that bowls at that time was pretty much the national sport. So by portraying this great hero playing bowls, you were effectively saying to the nation, he was one of us, he was one of the lads. Well, one of the lads, I believe, was uh, King Charles I. We revealed in a recent podcast that he had a bowling green made for him at Carisbrook Castle on the Isle of Wight while he was being held as a prisoner there during the Civil War. But um, he was a keen bowler, wasn't he? He was. The Tudors and the Stuarts were incredibly keen sportsmen. I mean, you know, Henry VIII built tennis courts all over the place. Charles I, he loved his tennis. Charles II. Charles II actually helped produce the first set of rules ever published for bowls in 1670. But it's an example of the culture of the time that how do you look after the king as he's when he's staying at Carisbrook? You create a bowling green for him. And it was said that during his time there, he bowled pretty much every night until he tried to escape. And the tragedy about Carisbrook is, and Emily, I'm sure, knows this story, that his daughter, Elizabeth, I understand, actually died as a result of catching a chill whilst she was on the bowling green at Carisbrook. Emily, do you know about that? I did not know about that. That's a good fact. <laughs> I enjoyed that. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, perhaps we'd better check that, but I'm sure that that is what, what it tells us uh, on I'm some sure of the information true. boards. Yes. Interesting. And did Charles play the kind of bowls that we would recognise today with the balls which aren't quite balls, which sort of, as you say, have this bias where they roll sort of inwards? Very much so. Very much so. It was modernised in the late 19th century. 
so that the bias is very much a measured um, scale so that when you're buying your woods, they're still called woods, even though they're now completely made of synthetic materials. They were much more heavily biased in Charles I's time right. than they are today. And that is because the turf that they're playing on, the greens that they're playing on, are much smoother now. In Charles I's time, and, and it probably didn't look that different to ha as it looks today, they were very happy to pay on any rough bit of ground. I mean, Plymouth Hoe being a good example of this. But there is one place in the country where you can still see the sort of bowls that would have been played at Charles I's time, and that's at Lewis in East Sussex on the, on the Castle Green where there is still very, very heavily biased woods being played on undulating, unmanicured turf, just as it would have been done at the time of Francis Drake, Charles I. It's only in the 19th century, again, coming back to the lawnmower, advances in turf technology, that you start to see the flatter greens becoming more popular. But there was a period in the 18th century, and, and there's a wonderful quote from a French aristocrat, the Count de Gramont, who visits uh, England during the reign of Charles II, and he sees a bowling green, and he describes it in his diary as, the turf was as smooth and level as the cloth of a billiard table, <laughs> a turf more soft and smooth than the finest carpet in the world. And it was this awe that foreigners had when they saw the perfectly manicured bowling green. But of course, that was only for the rich. The cost of having a bowling green, you know, the scythe man, the man who kept the grass short, they were like the sort of the plumbers of their day. They could charge what any rate they wanted. Once you had a good scythe man, you did not let him go. And of course, that image of the perfectly smooth, like a billiard table bowling green has become an image of England ever since. And I appreciate you there explaining the sort of the change in moving from rough surface to a manicured lawn. The French, though, are still happy to play boule or pétanque on rough surfaces, aren't they? Yes, because of the climate. The turf pitch across every single sport. You know, we were talking about tennis earlier on. Wimbledon is the only one of the Grand Slams left that still plays on turf. You know, if we have one quality in this country is that we know how to look after a good lawn. And in hotter countries, France is, is, is an example where there isn't that same tradition of lawn keeping. They're very content to play a game in which you don't roll the ball along the ground because the ground is rough. You throw it in the air and then it lands. So the roots of the game are exactly the same. But by rolling it along the ground, along a smooth turf, it changes the, the character of it completely. Balls, as we know, can be quite a sort of rumbustuous, raucous game played at the back of cafes and bars in France. It doesn't have quite the same decorum that we associate with the English game. And because of the bias of, of the game as well, you can get very, very tight situations, a bit like curling. In fact, mm. exactly like curling. Yes. Um, so to a large extent, it's a bit more of a scientific game. And of course, you don't want to be um, too uncouth with your equipment because you'll leave a divot, which is uh, a thing that we'll move oh, on in, to a little bit later when we talk about golf. <laughs> indeed. Uh, there the were bowling greens in England where you would be fined if you were wearing heels. The Charles the, the Second rules, the very last rule says quite clearly, keep your temper. <laughs> oh, right. OK. Yes. Emily, you know where some bowling greens are that exist at English heritage sites today, don't you? Yeah, so at Rest Park in Bedfordshire, there's a there's a reference to a window being repaired in a bowling greenhouse in 1705. So we know that there was a building to do with bowling at that point in the gardens. 
the building was set to one side of the bowling green and that was a kind of square with cut off corners and very flat surface as, as um, Simon's been talking about. But the current building at Rest Park was from 1735 and it would have provided a place for refreshments and socialising whilst watching the games. And you can still see that building and the green in front of it today. Hmm. Another example which I like to talk about, which kind of moves away from the bowls and perhaps more towards that sort of French model, is the recent excavations that have been covered a nine-pin bowling alley at Marble Hill House in London. And this was marked on an 18th century plan. And there was a very short-lived fashion for these kind of games in gardens in the early part of the 18th century. And it was played using small, solid balls. And it was much more like skittles than a modern 10-pin bowling or bowls. Mm. We've just reconstructed this nine-pin alley, in fact, at Marble Hill as part of the National Heritage Lottery-funded project. And visitors will be able to play on it from 2022, which is very exciting. Is that just outside the house then? Yeah, so it's just in the in between the house and the River Thames at Marble oh, right. Hill. So it's okay. a beautiful setting. Oh, fantastic. Moving on to some other sports that uh, derive from lawns. And cricket, of course, is one of those ones that you think of being a sport where the ground is very much looked after and presented well, because that's crucial, of course, to the bounce. Simon, nothing quite as quintessentially English as cricket. How and when did cricket develop? Well, again, uh, rather like bowls, and 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 we took we talked earlier about croquet. Our sporting culture really is is shared very much with northern France, with Flanders, with the Low Countries, and cricket is an example where there is a very strong school of thought to think that it did emanate from France. We know that it's come to this country by certainly the end of the 16th century, where it's described as croquet. Again, a possibly the old French word for a club or a stick. Very similar to croquet, of course. I was just thinking um, that. <laughs> yes. And it, we know that it had got to Guildford in 1598 because there's a description of a chap called John Derrick, a scholar at the free school at Guildford, who was playing cricket as a schoolboy in the 1550s. And for the next 100, 150 years or so, it is mostly associated with school children and also played out in the fields, because at this time you don't play on a pristine pitch at all. You're just playing on any piece of ground, and you're rolling the ball along the ground. And the bat, instead of being straight as we see it today, was more like a crook, like a, a hockey stick perhaps, hmm. that you sort of scoop the ball off the ground as it comes towards you in order to score runs. So it makes that transition to flat, smooth turf by about the beginning of the 17th century. And we start to see the first sort of first class games played between two teams of aristocrats in Sussex. 1698, I think, is the first, or 1697. And they're playing for big money. They're betting 50 guineas a game, you know, which is a lot of money by those standards. Wow. And this is a game that looks very different to cricket today. Nobody would have been wearing white. The ball would have been a hard, small wooden ball played on rough ground. Scores were notched up on a stick, on a tally stick. And the game could be over in a matter of hours, very rough and ready. But as the aristocracy start to take it on, and, and of course they've got their beautifully manicured lawns, it starts to change and it goes from two wickets to three wickets. The shape of the bat changes. And then gradually, instead of rolling the ball along the ground, which incidentally is, is why the people who deliver the ball in, in cricket are still called bowlers, rather than throwers. But by the 1830s, they're going a bit overarm. And then by the 1860s, it's established that the full overarm action is the one. 
So it takes a couple of hundred years for cricket to become the game that we know. And even the ball itself, which is the interesting survivor of it, that has not really changed since about the 1780s. Rather like the balls in bowling, the ball in cricket with its three rows of stitches and its two halves of leather and the fact that it changes shape and gets knocked around and its characteristics change as the game gets older. It's a very organic production, a very organic construct. Really, that goes back to the 1780s. So to a large extent, it starts as a schoolboy game. It's taken over by the aristocracy. But of course, these lords, they didn't really want to work up a sweat. So they got professionals in to bowl at them so that they didn't have to do it. And one of the most famous professional bowlers is a chap whose name many of us know from Lord's Cricket Ground. His name was Thomas Lord. He was a professional bowler. He also did a bit of work on the side providing wine and victuals to his lordling teammates. And eventually they're playing out on open ground and the public are getting fed up with cricket balls flying all over the place. So the lordling cricketers, as they were described in the Times, tell Thomas Lord, go and find us a ground, which he does in St. John's Wood in in 1787. And it just happens to be called Lord's because Thomas Lord was the first proprietor. Well, that's something I didn't know before. Simon, can you just describe this situation with three wickets into two, I think you mentioned? There were effectively two stumps. There is a tradition around the world of games in which you're defending a stump or some kind of structure, a stool, and the aim of the other person is is to knock it over. So originally it starts as two stumps, but because there were numerous instances of where somebody would bowl the ball and it would go down the middle, straight through the middle of the stumps, and it wasn't out. And this was felt to be very unfair, so they added the third stump to make it much fairer. And similarly with the bat, when unscrupulous batsmen came out with a bat that was about a foot wide, (laughs) and therefore you could just plonk it in front of the wicket and never be out. And then they ruled that, no, it, it could only be something like four and a half inches wide, otherwise it just wasn't fair on the bowlers. So like all these games, they go through experimental phases, but it is uncanny really how once they got something that worked, like the design of the cricket ball, like the design of the stumps, like the design of the bat. It's stuck. It's stayed that way ever since. Emily, where could we see a cricket match being played today at an English heritage site? The cricket pitch uh, is still used at Audley End House, which is in Essex, by the Audley End and Littlebury Cricket Club. So this was laid out in 1842 by the fifth Lord Braybrook, Charles Neville, who was a keen cricketer. And he played there lots of times. And even on his birthday, when he was 22, he's famous for getting 111 runs on his birthday, which is quite a nice score for the day. Absolutely. In fact, it sounds like a, a cricket stump, doesn't it, really? Three stumps together, one, one, one. <laughs> And could we also see a cricket pavilion at any of the English heritage sites across the country? So there is a cricket pavilion at Osborne House on the Isle of Wight, but that is now currently used as a holiday let. So you can go and stay in a cricket pavilion, but you can't necessarily see any others on any other sites that I know of. Okay, well, let's move on to archery now, which has ancient origins, doesn't it, Simon? It's a bow and arrow. Indeed, again, common to cultures all around the world. And of course, the English were particularly proud of their archers in battles right across history. But the longbow itself, which is the form of bow and arrow that we see today, 
effectively, this was obsolete for military uses in the 16th century. The last time it was used in anger in, on these islands was at Flodden Field in 1513. And the last time that an archer was recruited to the English army was 1595. Mm. And what this resulted in is basically a lot of bowyers and fletchers with vast stocks on their hand and a centuries-old tradition just going to waste. And I think it rather says a lot about the English psyche that within a matter of years of this happening, there are already reenactment societies and preservation societies being formed to keep up the honourable art of archery. And a fletcher is someone who makes the arrows, which I believe comes from the French, la flèche, for an arrow. And a bowyer, obviously, is a bowman, uh, someone who makes the bows. That's right, yes. So we start to see societies being formed, like the the, the Finsbury archers in London and the woodmen of Arden, literally sort of dressing up like Robin Hood with feathers in their caps and green velvet jackets and sort of swanning around the country as if they were sort of the keepers of this ancient tradition. And again, this was very much a pastime for the rich. You had to have time and space in order to do this. But they had some very unusual practices. They didn't just hit at targets, shoot at targets as we know today. The Finsbury archers, for example, had a set of marks dotted around London, north of the city wall, from about Islington, right through Islington. And they would take a day out and they would take their bows and arrows and they'd go from mark to mark shooting arrows, like a golf course. Right. This is in public ground. This is public areas. They'd have a little map of where the marks were and they would aim their arrows at the distant mark, maybe two, three hundred yards away. And they could spend all day doing this. This carried on till the early 18th century before finally the the urbanisation of of those fields in Islington rendered the sport impossible. And like many games, what people were looking for was how can you play it in a smaller area? So target archery then becomes very much the norm. A large number of people, particularly in the country house set and and amongst aristocrats in the city, there was a a splendid chap called Sir Ashton Lever of Alcrington in Lancashire, who settles in London and popularises the whole business of archery. And he forms a, a thing called the Toxophilite Society, because it had to have a Greek name to have respectability. And there were competitions, the oldest sporting competition that's being continuously staged in this country is played in Yorkshire. It's called the Scorton Arrow. And that goes back to 1673. So long before football, rugby and tennis and all these other sports. And are they using the standard sort of archery target colours that we would see today in in that competition? No, that was a relatively late, I say relatively late, here's a historian speaking, 1790s. (laughs) The colours that we know today, which has got the white outer ring, then black, then blue, then red, and then yellow in the middle, these were known as the prince's colours. The Prince of Wales, later George IV, he was a very, very keen patron of archery. And at that period, It really needed royal patronage to make a sport respectable. This happens throughout history. Once a member of the royal family adopts a sport, then it becomes respectable. This was very much the case with archery. But having said that, there was, in the 18th century, also a working-class archer who was a shoemaker. And because he did manual labour, a chap called James Rawson from Manchester, who was said to be the finest archer in the whole country and never lost a challenge in his entire life. 
Emily, you know a bit about archery and how that's connected to English heritage locations. So we have a fabulous example of an archery target range at Brodsworth Hall and Gardens, which is in Yorkshire. And this was set up in the 19th century. And it's a specifically designed place to practice archery at Brodsworth. And it's an unusual example of this kind of purposely designed range at a country house, whereas normally they would have just used an existing open space. There's also a building at the end of this range called the Target House, and it's an 18th century structure that was repurposed, and it would have stored the archery equipment, and it was re-roofed in a rustic Swiss style, which is quite sweet, hmm. in the 1860s. And recently, uh, earlier this year, we put some new interpretation to tell you the story of the archery and the archery sets at the Target House, which you can go and look at at Brodsworth Hall today. Lastly, we move on to golf. We're on the 18th hole, as it were, when the sport of golf comes to the fore. I've been under the impression that the Scots were the inventors, Simon. Is that right, though? That's the accepted story. I think there's a, quite a few people in Holland who would claim otherwise. <laughs> Again, there's that always that connection with the Low Countries, with Flanders, with northern France. But the reason why I think the Scots have the main claim is that if, effectively, wherever you are playing golf, today in any part of the world, whether you're in California, Dubai, Australia, China, wherever, you are effectively playing on a recreated landscape from Scotland. And that is unique amongst sports, that it's not just playing on a flat piece of turf, but actually you're replicating a landscape. And the Scots, certainly the first record of golf being played, it was called Goff, G-O-F-F, comes in 1457. Mary, Queen of Scots, was said to have been a keen golfer. And her son, James I of England, James VI of Scotland, he brings golf to him when he moves to London and is seen playing a form of the game on Blackheath in the early 17th century. It doesn't really catch on until the 18th, 19th century. Even up to the middle of the 19th century, I think there was only something like three golf clubs in the whole of, of England. But then it takes off again because of urbanization, because of improvements in turf technology, which enable you to lay out and actually formally design a golf course for the first time. And the Scots are very much to the fore in all of these. Wherever you find a golf club in English history in the 19th century, you will find Scots at the heart of it. You need a lot of space, of course, for a golf course in the modern game. Were there any... At English heritage sites? Did the landed gentry, the aristocracy, have enough space for an 18-hole course? It's very unusual for golf courses to be built while houses were still a private residence, although a lot of country houses have obviously been turned into golf courses since then. A notable exception is the golf course at Osborne House on the Isle of Wight, which is the holiday home of Queen Victoria and her family. And that was possibly created as early as 1872, but it probably consisted of only two or three holes at that time. So we know in 1887, one guest is reminded to bring their golf sticks as there is a course on the premises. So we know it was being played then. But after Victoria's death, the Royal Navy College used the house and they increased the course to nine holes. And the layout of the course has changed over the years, but the Osborne Golf Club still runs a nine-hole course there today. Right. What's the legacy of all these English sporting inventions or adoptions? What do they say about the times they were created in? I think, obviously, as we've said earlier, they speak very much of the landscape. They're all related to games which, in a way, pit the player against the landscape, against the ground, against the soil, the turf, whatever. 
And I think that is very much a facility of the British Isles. Um, Mm. We mustn't forget the Irish, the Scots and the Welsh. They were all part of this huge movement. When golf became so popular, Bernard Darwin at Downhouse called it the Great Golf Stream. And you have to ask, well, why were our games so popular around the rest of the world? And I think part of it is to do with the fact that the British, not only in terms of horticulture and landscape management, but also about the codification of these games, boxing them up into a set, providing a set of rules. And here we must bow to the Scots because the Scots were great rule makers in sport. But I think above all, the comment that I always come back to is that of a Dutch historian and academic, Juan Huizinger, in in the 1930s, who said, and it's not true, but I think it does sum up the spirit. He says, only the English have a word for fun. Speaking of fun, then, lastly, for both of you, if you had to live another life in the past and you had to be, I don't know, a member of the aristocracy or something like that, what sport would you choose to play and where would you live which english heritage site should i start us off (laughs) i've I've thrown you a bit of a googly with that question yes you have (laughs) i think that there would be something rather enjoyable about playing croquet or tennis on an english lawn at one of our properties so for example at belsay perhaps and having to set up the elaborate net and sort of get all your friends together and play tennis on that lawn surrounded by the beautiful flowers and the beautiful setting of that garden I think there's something quite idyllic and quite attractive about that idea, I would say. Mm. I can imagine tea being served out to you, Emily, as you took a break. Well, I do love tea, so that would be delightful, (laughs) I think. Simon, what do you think? (laughs) Well, purely for historical reasons, one of the stories that I love the most is from an English heritage property is Upnor Castle in Kent. It's during the Civil War and the Royalist troops are supposed to be defending this place. Cromwell troops take it very, very easily because it's found that the King's troops were at bowls. (laughs) And I just love the idea of a rather sleepy garrison with some English Royalist troops who should have been at their duties and were actually probably gambling over a game of bowls whilst the enemy attacked. But also just to see how they played and what the game looked like, because being a historian in this area, so much of the evidence is buried. There's so so little formal evidence. And so virtually any of these early games, to have witnessed them as they were in their raw original state, I think would be fascinating. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. For details of the English Heritage sites mentioned in this podcast, please head over to the English Heritage website. Next week, we'll be back to uncover how English Heritage's conservation work is helping to protect the stories of Marble Hill House in London and Belsay Hall, Castle and Gardens in Northumberland. Thanks for listening. See you next time.